Welcome to Post Dune, regenerative conversations exploring overshoot grief, grounding, and gratitude. I'm your host, Michael Dowd. And in this episode, recorded in early April 2020, in the coronavirus era, I speak with Patrick Farnsworth, who is the age of my son, and yet I consider him an older brother on the podcast path. His podcast, Last Born in the Wilderness, is truly the best of the best in this field. Uh, I first encountered him in his interview with Dar Jamel and Barbara Cecil, who I consider two amazing leaders in this field. And um, watch the 13-minute introduction to his podcast on his about page, lastborninthewilderness.com. I think you'll enjoy it, and I think you'll enjoy this. Patrick, what a delight to have you on this side of uh, the conversation, because of course you've been doing these Last Born in the Wilderness podcasts, and you're usually the one asking questions and engaging in conversation. And um, as I mentioned to you in my email, I thought, you know, your conversation, well, most of them that I've listened to, but your conversation with Dar Jamel and Barbara Cecil in particular was just so kick-ass and just so wonderful. Mm. And, and the rapport between the three of you was just so sweet. In fact, Dar at first reached out to me and said, hey, you might want to just use this conversation I had with Patrick uh, as the post-Doom conversation. And, and my response after I listened to it was like, good try. <laughs> it's awesome. <laughs> it's absolutely awesome. And there's other questions that I want to oh. ask you. So, you know. so, anyway, oh, so welcome you. to this series. Thank you. I appreciate it. And I, and I will say that that, interview with Dar and Barbara was probably, um, I, I still think of it as one of my favorite discussions that I've had for the podcast. And I have a lot of interviews that I've done, but that one, I think what made it so special is I was at Dar's house and I spent a week or two at his place and he, like everything lined up in such a way where we had known, he, we had been around each other, all three of us for about a week. Dar's very close friend had passed away about a week before that. Yes. Dar was transitioning out of um, his work with Truth Out, doing um, more reporting journalism. And just, just where we were all at at that moment in that hour or so that we recorded that was just, and the fact that we we're all sitting in his living room and all of us together, it was like, that was the culmination of all yeah. of these different things that were happening in our lives. And, and so I think that, that particular discussion with them, we really sunk down very deep. And I think people that listened to that could really feel that it that, that really resonated with so many people. Um, and it was very moving to, to hear the responses from people to hear what you had to say right now, for instance, about it. I, I knew as I was recording it, that this was going to be a very special yes. episode and it was going to, again, resonate with a lot of people. I had that feeling just, right off the bat with them. Um, so I'm really glad that that connected with you and I'm glad that I'm on this program with you. I really thank you for, for considering me for it. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and anybody watching or listening to this, I will have the link to Patrick's conversation with Dar and Barbara in the description box. Um, Beautiful. Well, Patrick, because some people won't have listened to your podcast, they don't know who you are, uh, at the start, if you could just help us get you, help us understand, uh, anybody watching or listening to this, help us understand sort of who you are and what you're now known for and what you're particularly passionate about or concerned about. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, like you said, I, I host a podcast, <clears throat> excuse me, I host a podcast 
Uh, it's called Last Born in the Wilderness. And I think I started it officially. I was thinking about this maybe eight or so years ago officially, but I would say the first four or five years of that was just me very unfocused. I didn't know what, it was just really reflective of where I was, I, I was at at that time in my life of having a feeling that I knew that I needed to do something or contribute in some way to the broader discussions around uh, current events, uh, political theory, um, climate change, climate disruption, the ecological crisis, and all the things that I was really interested in and having conversations with people about. Um, and I guess I felt really encouraged by what I was seeing with other podcasts, what was really possible right now. We, you know, anybody can start a podcast. And of mm -hmm. course, that's a good thing and a bad thing. Um, but, you know, <laughs> you know, but, but, you know, it really comes down to the amount of effort and time you want to spend honing your craft and learning how to engage in really meaningful and mm -hmm. well-crafted discussions and interviews. So, so yeah, I mean, I started that with that intention, but it wasn't until about four years ago or so that I really started to do what I'm doing now, which is just do long form interviews, um, similar to what you're doing, Michael. Um, and so, yeah, like I said, I mean, I, I, the, the, the range of discussions are, I think, broad. Um, you know, I, I've, I've talked with uh, journalists and scientists. I've talked with psychedelic researchers and, and I've talked with refugees. I've talked with, um, talked with people just across this whole spectrum uh, of professions and backgrounds. And um, I guess the thrust of my work is just to, again, do what you're doing, very similar to what you're doing, Michael, um, which is we're living in a time, I mean, when I became aware really the predicament that I really just wanted to help. Um, it was really, you know, a, a very self-centered way. I wanted to talk with people that I thought I, I admired and I wanted to connect with, but I also wanted to be able to share that experience of connecting with these people through a podcast. And um, so, yeah, I've been doing that for, for several years now. I think it's funny. I, I think for a long time, I felt this sense of almost they call it like imposter syndrome or something like that. Like I didn't feel qualified to do what I'm doing. I, I dropped out of high school when I was like 17. I, I don't like school. I tried to go to college, didn't enjoy it, but I was always really felt like my education was just on my own terms and what I wanted to learn and what I wanted to explore was just based purely on my passion and interest in these subjects. Um, and so yeah, I mean, the podcast has been a vehicle. It's turned into something so much richer and bigger than I could have ever imagined when I started it. Uh, I've done a public talk because of it. I have a book that's being published uh, next month is the scheduled release. Um, I've made incredible friends yes. uh, because of this yes. work. And that's really, I think that part particularly is the richest thing is I've uh, you know, that as they say, you know, find the others, find other people who you can, you know, resonate with and connect with on these things. And I think that is what's happened. Uh, it's mm -hmm. just really remarkable to see where this project has taken me and the amount of love and support that I've received from so many people because of it. Um, it's been an incredible journey for me. And, and I, and it's just still feels like it's just getting started. Like we're just, I'm just barely getting into it, you know, and so it's really been a growth process for me. It's been a big challenge for me to get out of my comfort zone and my assumptions and my beliefs about certain things. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, that, that's basically what I do. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm curious. Uh, first of all, 
anybody watching or listening to this, if you have not experienced Last Born in the Wilderness, it's one of the most highly regarded podcasts in this field. And you really owe it to yourself to experience some of Patrick's conversations. Um, I'm curious, how has that shifted? I mean, my own, this post-Doom conversation project is one that began six months ago. Um, even though there's, as of you know, this recording on April 3rd, 2020, now fully in the coronavirus era, it's like you know, the Christian calendar is divided into BC and AD. Well, <clears throat> Western civilization, I think, might very well be in the sort of BC before coronavirus and AC after coronavirus. And so this is actually, this conversation with you is actually one of the first in a after coronavirus era. My first one was with Jem Bendel, uh, just uh, couple weeks ago. I'm curious, how has your podcast and your work and the conversations you've been having shifted in a coronavirus era? You know, I think what I've done is I've tried to, because I have certain guests on the podcast that I revisit um, over and over again. Um, for instance, I had a recent interview with Joe Brewer recently. I, um, I had an interview. Yeah, Joe is great. And I love catching up with him. Um, and, uh, I, I've become really close with the folks at Gods and Radicals. It's really interesting, um, website and book publisher. And I've, I've worked very closely with the founders of that. I guess, I guess to answer your question, I mean, I, I think, I think, I don't know if it's healthy or unhealthy anymore, but I've been trying to be really busy, uh, when this pandemic hit the United States, especially, and lockdown started happening, and people started self-quarantining, and I started picking up on the fear and the panic and the worry that a lot of people around me and the people I know online were were experiencing. I, I tend to feel that really intimately, and I'm and I think that that question of like what, how can my work help? How can it be? How can it help us navigate through what's happening right now? Because if I'm talking about these crises that we're in the midst of, whether it's ecological or, or the climate crisis, or, or even you know the crisis that exists within our cultures and, and civilization at large, um, this crisis is hitting every one of those levels. Yes, this is revealing something to me and to so many people simultaneously how precarious this whole system really is. And I've looked at it like this is a precursor or this is a trial run almost of what's going to be coming with the climate crisis, for instance. Absolutely. So I, I've really just been reaching out to a lot of people, um, staying very busy. And I, again, I don't know if that's healthy or not, because it's like in being really busy, I haven't taken enough time to myself to really reflect on it, what it means to me specifically and what it means for my friends and my family. Certainly those thoughts come up and those emotions mm -hmm, come up. Mm -hmm. But I wonder at what point is this work like, a, 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 not, maybe not an obstacle, but something that I use to avoid those really difficult personal introspections that I think we all need to have right now. Um, I've, I don't know what the right, the right path forward is, but this is really the only thing that I know how to do. So it's interesting, you know, it's like, <laughs> it's like this thing is, is beautiful and I love doing it. And, and I think it does actually help myself and others, but I wonder at what point are we just kind of, we just get caught up in the momentum of it and we don't really take that time to do what it's actually, I think, asking us to do, which is slow down. Yeah. 
you know, another guest that I've had on the podcast a couple of times is Bayouaka Malafe. And he says, yeah, you know, know. Uh, the times are, times are urgent, slow down. Yes, exactly. And I think that that really, really applies to where we are right now. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know if that answers your question, but in a way my work is, I don't know where it fits in all of that. Um, yeah. And I'm navigating that right now as we speak. Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. Well, I'm curious. I don't know anything about you personally. I'm just curious, where do you live? Uh, you know, do, mm. you, do you have family close by or are they all scattered to the winds? Like, like help me just help us because I'm asking this publicly uh, to whatever you feel, the degree <laughs> you feel comfortable share, you know, like, like yeah, what's your personal life like? Yeah. Okay. Um, so right now I am living uh, in Southern Idaho here in the United mm -hmm. States. Mm -hmm. So, <laughs> so this is the funny thing. Uh, timing, I was actually going to bring this up, is that timing seems so important. And I've noticed so many people talking about how everything in their life, not that it's the same for everybody. I mean, there's, there's people certainly not in this situation at all, but where things have happened in such a way that you're, like for me specifically, I feel like things that have been happening just in the past couple of months, for instance, have mm -hmm. lined up in such a way that I can be where I am at right now, which and I'm very grateful and very fortunate to be in because I'm currently at my mother's house, right? Mm -hmm. And this idea, so, so last year I, I had a pretty big transition in my life. I got divorced. I had an unsuccessful marriage, um, which, you know, we, we left fairly amicable in, mm -hmm. in that, which I'm lucky that that happened. Um, happy that that happened that way. But after that happened, I actually decided, you know, I'm going to be a nomadic. I'm going to go, go to different places. So that's when I went up to Washington and spent time with Dar and Barbara, mm -hmm. spent the time with them, recorded interviews up there, spent mm -hmm. time with them, recorded that interview with them. Uh, and then after that happened, this book project emerged. And, uh, and then uh, uh, my, my partner who lives in Brazil, who's actually an editor at Gods and Radicals, uh, she and I decided that we were going to do some interviews together, but that I would come down to Brazil. So actually, I just spent two months in Brazil. I, I, I um, had never, I'd been outside the U.S. one time. I went to Europe a couple of years ago. I went to, well, you know, Western Europe, like England and Scotland and that area and Ireland. But, uh, you know, and it's funny because people say that doesn't really count because it's so similar to the United States. And it's true. You know, it's, it's not exactly a culture shock, but it, it, is, it is a bit of a shift if you've been in the U.S. your whole life. But um, but anyway, I, I, uh, Mina, uh, down in Brazil and I decided we would work together and we would kind of explore some new things with this podcast. So mm -hmm. we had five interviews in total that we did in Brazil. Four out of five of those interviews were done with people who mainly just speak Portuguese. So Mina was an interpreter and a translator for that. Yes. One person was, uh, from the United States and, and that was a, a, a good experience just to like, remember how to have an interview with a person in the language you can understand. But um, but yeah, we traveled around Brazil. We spent most of our time in southeastern Brazil. We went up to northeastern Brazil for some time, and I had a really powerful, just huge experience there. I would say it was overall just an incredibly positive experience, but it was very also challenging, and it exposed so much of, I mean, it just, I, I don't know how do we even explain it. It could be a whole episode in and of itself to talk about that, but it really was a, a huge shift in my life and my consciousness and how I experience what's currently happening right now. Yeah. So I came back in February and I actually had plans to go back to Washington and then go back to Brazil. Um, 
And then due to other circumstances that really had nothing to do with the pandemic, to be honest with you, Mm -hmm. I canceled my trip to Brazil. And then I knew, I remember I was in Brazil and I'm hearing about the pandemic breaking out in China, right? That's like ground zero. And I'm like, I, I think what I acknowledged when I was hearing that is that I had my own levels of denial mm-hmm. about that in particular. You know, I'm like, oh, it'll be fine. Everything will work out. I, I don't know. I, I was just, it wasn't, didn't even want to address what was actually happening. Um, even though I was sort of paying attention to it. But anyway, I, I was here and this idea was I was going to be here temporarily, but here we are, you know, two, three weeks or so since the U.S. has been um, dealing with this pandemic and we're really just getting started, yes, exactly. right? We're just really at the, the front of this. And so, yeah, so, I mean, uh, uh, right now I'm in a really good situation and I feel very lucky that I, I am able to live where I'm living right now, um, that I'm able to do the work that I'm doing. I mean, I really, I haven't had to change much in how I approach my work at all. You know, I can do everything online like just like before. So yeah. really the only the only difference is just the more, um, um, I guess, what I choose to talk about on the podcast right now in light of COVID-19. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and try to incorporate all the things that I've experienced really just in the past year into how I approach this work as well. And uh, so that's where I'm at right now. Yeah. And my well, family is close by. Good. Did, good. did you did you grow up in that area? I did, yeah. I grew up in a so I mean, southern Idaho is really rural for the most part. Um and yeah, this is where I grew up. I, I went to a very, very small school uh called it's a tiny, tiny town of maybe like I think there's like officially like three hundred people that live in this town. It's a little agricultural community called Castleford. And I mean I was from a, a class of less than 30 people you know what I mean um so you know most of my life I've been in fairly I mean it's funny I've been joking with people that people down in Idaho already practice social distancing pretty well already you know we're already so far apart from each other as as it is so uh you know it hasn't been that difficult of an adjustment to to do that but I mean that was the, that was really the big, one of the big shocks or culture shocks of going to Brazil is like, I landed in the airport in Sao Paulo. Sao Paulo is one of the most populated cities in the world. It's certainly the most populated city in the Southern hemisphere and even the Western hemisphere. There's over 20 million people that live in the city and landing there and then taking an Uber or whatever it was to our hotel, which took us almost an hour to get like, I was having multiple just sensory overload everywhere I went was just like, there's more people. Everybody's a little like everybody's lives just spill over into each other more and being a very like Americanized white man here and then going there. I mean, it was a big, it was a big deal to adjust to. I'll say that. And then also the language barrier. Um, I, I would recommend if you can do it, if you've lived in the United States your whole life and you've been surrounded by people that only speak English and you go to another country where people don't speak the, the language you speak, um, it's a huge, it's a big deal, you know, and I, and I keep on telling people this because there is this weird entitlement that people have about their identity of, of like, we're English speaking Americans and they get very upset when people don't speak English. And I'm like, look, just, shut up and just try to experience what it's like to be the other in a yes. situation for once in your life 
And so I, I really, I mean, that was, I only had to experience that for a couple months, but um, that was a, that was a big shift for me. You know, it really just. Yeah. It, yeah. It's, it's, it's a humbling. I mean, I, I, I spent three years in Berlin, Germany. And then whenever I traveled, whenever I had leave time, I was in the military back in the late 80s or late seventies, early eighties. Um, you know, I, I, tr I didn't come back to the States. I figured when was I going to get a chance to see Europe inexpensive. So I, mm -hmm. you know, went to Israel and mm -hmm. Ireland and Belgium and France and, and um, yeah, being in a culture that doesn't speak your language is huge, but it, that was decades ago. And just, just two months ago, less than that, a month and a half ago, I flew down to South America for the very first time because my son is living in, my son is 34 years old, uh, and he was to be married to a Colombian South American woman. Um, and uh, her whole family lives there. And so they asked me to officiate uh, because I was one of the, that was the only person they knew that could bridge the radical diversity in terms of religion and philosophy that, you know, was going to be represented, yeah. including, including Catholics. And so I right. was, I was humbled because uh, I was actually a little bit fearful because half the plane was wearing these masks and I sat next to an elderly Chinese couple that would had the masks. And I was like, man. And so I was actually had some anxiety and fear and thought about even making my sh trip shorter and getting back here. Cause I was afraid that international travel was going to, was going to be uh, yeah. curtailed. And, but it was, yeah. it was important for me to be re reimmersed in a culture where I was a minority. My language was not the dominant one and that I was uh, uh, humbled to also see a way of living that was not the same as my own. So. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Patrick, one of the things that I wanted to do is just sort of because you've been doing these amazing conversations that are sort of many of them sort of parallel track to what I'm doing in this post-Doom conversation series, I want to ask, you know, what have been one of the most important, what have been some of the most important learnings uh, that you've uh, gained from your experience? But I also wanted to ask in terms of like just the language that we're using post doom, you know, it's like, mm. uh, does that language work for you? What language do you tend to find yourself using for these crazy and contracting times? Like just about, about the language. Okay. Yeah. So the first question is, I guess what I've learned. Yeah. So I think something I've learned, and I guess this would tie into this language of post doom. Um, and I do resonate with that by the way. Um, I'll say like something that has really come up a lot in that, and, and this especially came up in my trip to Brazil is I think we, as people here, particularly in the United States or in the dominant culture of North America, as Stephen Jenkinson likes to put it all the time. Um, we tend to think that the apocalypse is coming, right? We tend to think that the apocalypse is this, thing that's going to arrive and that it's manifesting as this global climate crisis or ecological crisis. And certainly there is that level. I think, and this came up in my interview, I did an interview yesterday with Stan Rushworth, oh, um, wow. who's an amazing Cherokee um, elder, uh, amazing man, beautiful discussion with him. But in that discussion with him and in other discussions I've had, and also my experiences in Brazil with people I interviewed there, mm -hmm. what became apparent and obvious that the apocalypse arrived 500 years ago. Yeah. That yeah. everything that's happening right now is, so to speak, you could say the chicken's coming home to roost. That we have been insulated within this empire. We've been insulated within something that has for a long time insulated most of the people within it from the consequences 
of an empire, of being a part of an empire. So when you go to other places, or you just talk to people like you talk to indigenous people here still within the United States, if you just look around a little bit, you'll see that we have already, we're already in a post-apocalyptic time and that everything that's happening is a consequence of decisions and historical events and processes that have been unfolding for, for centuries or even longer than that. I mean, you know, uh, you could go back to the dawn of civilization and agriculture. I mean, yes. there's all these theories and discussions about where this really began. I, I don't know exactly where it began. I don't think it's one thing, but certainly we saw a massive shift happen 500 years ago or so. And then especially with the dawn of the industrial revolution, that's really when things manifested and really kicked up several notches in this process. Now, I think that was the thing that really clicked with me over the years of doing this work and especially this past year is that we need to humble ourselves and recognize that for us, the climate crisis, and I'm speaking as, again, I, I don't want to get into this whole identity politics thing too much, but to be honest, we are white men, right? We, we have the experience of white men. Um, for us, the existential threat is climate catastrophe. For indigenous people, for people in the global south and so many other parts of the world, the same things that are producing the climate crisis have been killing them yes. for hundreds of years, yes. right? I mean, that, didn't, that had to be shown to me and explained to me. Mm -hmm. And I have to be humbled in that fact that that didn't click until it was like expressed to me and shown to me. Yeah. So I think in transforming my work, I guess, it's like I really wanted to peel back those layers and get into those deeper dimensions of this crisis. Because people, I don't know, I've, I've maybe received a couple of criticisms occasionally, which is actually this points to the whole post-doom thing you mentioned. Somebody said that they wanted to support a podcast that was more focused around post-doom conversations and saying that to me because they were supporting me monetarily and then they moved away from that because they thought I was getting a little too divergent on my topics. And I'm like, look, I didn't say this to them specifically, but I was thinking about that. I'm like, if you can't see the various threads that I'm pulling on and tying together here, then I'm sorry. Um, this is multidimensional. This includes everybody. And we have to acknowledge the very, the experiences and the, the historical processes that have led us to this moment. Yes, exactly. And so um, that's been a big revelation for me and a, a, a part of my maturation as an individual. Mm -hmm. um, and as far as this post-doom thing, that, that really resonates with me because that's a part of the process. So there are people who call themselves doomers. I think we might fit ourselves in that category of acknowledging that mm -hmm. there are certain trends that are unfolding that cannot be ultimately changed or altered. Like there's a fatalistic quality to that, right? Mm -hmm. Now, I see what happens is when people finally begin to accept that we're in this place right now, that we are in the midst of this predicament. Yes. They get stuck. They get stuck in this place. And I'm not, this isn't a judgment because I've been there and I am probably still there in my own way. I'm not going to pretend I'm not, but we get stuck and we tend to become almost, I, I, I notice something that really disturbs me, which is a misanthropic mm -hmm. tendency that people have, which is they start hating on human beings mm -hmm. and they start to believe that this is inevitable that this was an inherent flaw and characteristic of human beings. And so I think when I think about post-doom, 
I think it's actually like peeling back those layers more and realizing that, no, there's, what what are you going to do with this time that we are in? Because right now, what you choose to do, the types of relationships you forge and make with others is of utmost importance and it's sacred even. And, and what I've come to as well, and this thing that Dar and Barbara pointed to in that interview with them and other people have pointed to as well in my interviews is that regardless of what happens, we have sacred obligations and responsibilities as human beings yes. right now. Yes. So even if this leads inevitably or potentially to our collective extinction as a species, which is certainly on the table, mm-hmm. that doesn't change the fact that we have responsibilities to ourselves, to our, our, our friends and our family and our, our human community and the earth and the living systems of the earth. That doesn't change. You're, that isn't off the table just because we're all going to die in whatever amount of time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, it, and it certainly puts a, a, a level of, um, it, it brings out a certain clarity and, um, a sense of, of duty and responsibility, yes. acknowledging where we are at right now. And that to me is what post-doom, that's what I feel when I hear that word, when I think about the language of that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, amen. I mean, that's exactly it. I mean, Connie often sort of jokes, but it's really not a joke. She says of me that my work is trying to influence sort of the religious systems, the religious meaning-making systems of the world to come Mm -hmm. home to Gaia, to come home to Earth as a divine reality, a sort of eco-theology, sort of ecology is the heart of my theology. So she says, you know, your work is trying to, you know, save religion, help religion come back to an ecological evolutionary, you know, grounding. She said, and maybe that can help us avoid extinction or at least avoid doing the, the worst, worst, worst damage. She said, my work, speaking of herself, is to assist the trees no matter what, even if we go extinct. Human beings, the difference between hundreds of species of native trees going extinct in the next 80 to 100 years and those same 100 species of native trees surviving the next 80 to 100 years will entirely depend upon humans assisting them in migrating poleward faster than any other animal can possibly move its seeds. So assisting trees in migrating and plants and shrubs, but assisting the green world in migrating faster than it could otherwise is holy work. Even if we go extinct in the next 50 years. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, and also, I mean, doing that work, what you're saying is acknowledging the sentience, the life, the spirit of the trees. I mean, it's acknowledging that they are just as alive and conscious as we are, you know, and that, that's something that, that runs through my work too, is this theme of, of um, animism, yes, right? Exactly. That, that, that to acknowledge, not just believe, but to acknowledge and know that everything is imbued with spirit. And again, that, that's a part of our sacred responsibilities right now is to come to that, to dispense with as much as we possibly can with this world eating machine that wants to reduce everything to resources, yes. to things that could be bought and sold in a marketplace to serve some profit motive or, you know, the bottom line of some corporation or whatever. Um, that's, that's really important right now. And when you really begin to acknowledge the sacredness of life, 
then it's really hard to know. I mean, that, that, that's, the, that's the challenging thing that I, I, I acknowledge with other people right now. And I occasionally get these questions, which is like, okay, I'm listening to your podcast. I agree with you. Now, what do I do with myself? Right. And I'm like, look, I've been in that. I don't know. I, I, I had to, <laughs> like, it's, it's a weird position to be in where people want to ask for advice. But I mean, like, look, I mean, I really do believe that if you, if you really listen intuitively, that'll, that'll emerge eventually. And even in your state of confusion and not knowing that that is itself a part of that process of, of coming into your, your, your ability to, to gift, to give, to be a part of that process. You know, I love when a phrase or something that you expect something to go in a certain angle and then it shifts, you know, bio Kamalafi, you know, the times are urgent. We must slow down, you know, that does that. Mm -hmm. Well, I, yeah, I like yeah. also the sort of the, the, the Zen saying, don't just do something, sit there. <laughs> yeah those paradoxes that actually make a lot of sense yes you know? exactly i mean to pay attention yeah. to our times and our world and to really re-fall in love or fall in love more deeply with the living world the, the, the ground upon which you dwell and the around you and you know as william reese i just had a conversation with bill reese so i know you've also had a conversation with and he he spoke about you know we will not protect that which we don't love and that's what the indigenous peoples, it seems to me when I think about the whole of human history, um, within the context of the history of life, that first of all, you realize it's not all about us. And the second thing you realize is that the, the fundamental demarcation between sustainable and unsustainable cultures or sustainable cultures uh, or accountable cultures, cultures that are accountable to the past and the future and accountable to the larger body of life upon which they depend and unaccountable cultures or unsustainable cultures. The fundamental demarcation as best I can tell is life-centeredness, ecocentrism or anthropocentrism, human-centeredness mm -hmm. and human-centered civilizations always self-destruct. We don't know any counterexamples and life-centered cultures can, that is those that treat the, uh, everything they depend upon, the water, the soil, the forest, the life upon which they depend as more important than them as a sacred vow, not just a, an it to be exploited. Those are potentially sustainable. And should any remnant of our species survive this bottleneck? And I think that there's, as I, I agree with you, that you know, there's a very good chance that we will not survive as a species 50 years or 100 years from now. But I think there's also a decent yeah. chance that there'll be at least some pockets of humanity that survive in outposts um, and sure. could last another million, two million years before a supervolcano or earth, you know, or you know, asteroid or something takes us out. But on a cosmic time scale, when you, you put the whole history of the universe, for example, into 100 years, even if we survive another 5 million years, which no mammal our size survives longer than that before it goes extinct, that's only a half a month on the cosmic century timeline. So you're like in mid-January of the 100th year, and then life goes on. And so it seems to me that this collapse of global capitalist industrial humanity, what William R. Catton Jr., the most important book I've ever read in my life is Catton's Overshoot, The Ecological Basis of Revolutionary Change. And he calls mm -hmm. industrial humanity homo colossus. And he draws a distinction between homo sapiens, the kind of folks that Stan Rush Rushworth speaks about and is, mm -hmm. um, and homo mm -hmm. colossus. That is where each of us uses 20 to 50 times the resources and exudes 20 to 50 times the waste. And mm -hmm. the extinction of homo colossus is absolutely inevitable. And the sooner the better. That may or may not mean the extinction of homo sapiens. But what I can say rather confidently is that 
kind of like that scene in in Avatar where the where the the uh, Colonel talks about you know he's going to be blowing up the Tree of Souls and he says we will create a crater in their racial memory that will be so severe they'll never go within 200 clicks of this place ever again. And I think the collapse of industrialism will be the crater in our species memory that should any pockets of humanity survive, let's say 70 different outposts or 700 outposts of humanity and little pockets survive around the world, each of them will mythologize the collapse of industrialism in different ways, but they'll all be basically making the same point, which is human centeredness. We don't do that. We don't go there. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah no, I, I think, uh, you know, I think it's interesting. I mean, I, I, I don't know how much I subscribe to the ideas, all the ideas of this, uh, of Graham Hancock. Um, he's interesting fellow, but he, he talks about these, you know, <laughs> these potentially these ancient civilizations that may have existed during or before the Ice Age or whatever. But, but he does bring up an interesting point in one of his books, at least, where um, there are these myths and stories that uh, that exist. That like it, it's it's so strange how there are these various uh, mythologies and stories like about this great flood that existed. We think of Noah's Ark, of course, from the Bible. But that is one of dozens of stories from around the world that discuss or talk about this great flood that existed, right? So if we can imagine what's happening right now, we can recognize that there are going, if there are these pockets of humanity that exist, they're going to, I hope, generate stories and cultural frameworks that are going to remind people of Absolutely. where the big wrong turn happened, exactly. you know? Um, there's interesting stories of indigenous societies where they, they look at archaeological records and they realize, okay, they actually went through a period where they developed very complex civilizations that required massive amounts of resources and extraction and, and you know, something like class divisions and all these different things, right, mm -hmm. that are parallel to what we're experiencing right now. Mm -hmm. And there was, and they have these really interesting moments in these, these, these um, in, in, in studying these cultures, these societies where some at some point people just literally walked away yeah they just said you know this isn't working it's killing everything and everybody and it's just it's collapsing all around us and they just walked away like th that's profound like how and this happens over and over and over again throughout human history so can we and that's the real big challenge are we able because this is bigger than anything i've i can imagine it's ever existed in earth's history human history in particular, where we have a global society, global civilization, global economic system. I mean, can we walk away? And if we can walk away, what would that look like? Give us that sense of your, um, your journey to where you are now in terms of your worldview. Okay, yeah, absolutely. Um, I was thinking about this question um, uh, this morning uh, and yesterday. I think. I think there was a big shift in me when I was 13, uh, 9-11. I remember 9-11 pretty vividly. Uh, I was here in Idaho, of course. I wasn't like in Manhattan when it happened, but I was 13 and I remember being a kid and I was in a very like conservative, insular kind of community of people. I grew up LDS or, or Mormon as the, I guess, mm -hmm. word that people like to use. Um, no longer a member of that church. But anyway, I grew up in a very conservative Mormon household. 
and I remember waking up one morning, getting ready for school, seeing the two, one or two of the towers on fire at that point. Um, and I knew that something really big had shifted, um, you know, uh, and I remember going to school and I remember, I remember the adults, you know, kids are very intuitive and they can sense when things are shifting, even though adults pretend like they're, oh, we're going to pretend everything's fine and we're going to act very responsible and adult-like, but really kids pick up on that right away, right? right? I knew all the adults, all the teachers were shook. Something happened and I knew this was a big deal, right? And so I remember we were like all day, I mean, we just watched the news and watched the towers collapse. I, I saw the people jumping out of the towers. Mm -hmm. The Pentagon got hit, that fourth plane crashed in Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. And then you know, the response that everybody was having to it. And again, I was a very naive, ignorant 13 year old. So I remember that wave of patriotism, of nationalism that emerged after what was initially just a sense of community. Like, oh my God, we're all in this together. This is a tragedy. So many people have died. And that was beautiful. But what I, what I, I didn't have maybe the language or the political or framework to understand this, but that sense of, community of coming together was very very easily hijacked by the state and by corporations yes. so quickly and that's that's how it works right yep. and this is naomi i've been talking about this concept and this idea for past several episodes naomi klein's shock doctrine yeah, exactly. or disaster capitalism yeah. right i mean immediately after we saw the patriot act immediately after the surveillance state started to really come out full force mm -hmm. um and the war on terror began which is endless world expanding war that was never going to end I, uh, and I remember I had a lot of people around me that were very conservative. They were Republicans. They believed in what George Bush was saying. We need to invade Iraq or initially Afghanistan and then invade Iraq. And I believed it. You know, I, I remember feeling those feelings of, of patriotism, of like connection to this idea of the war being a justified thing. And actually, I remember it was comedy. It was some comedians that were just pointing out the hip hypocrisy and the contradictions and the lies of the Bush administration. And that, that was a tipping point for me because that's when I started to read. That's when I started to read like Noam, Noam Chomsky and then Howard Zinn and started to get a grasp on American foreign policy and empire and then capitalism and how that functions. And that inevitably led to, okay, so we're in the midst of this... Um, I don't know, whatever this is, right? And I started to then acknowledge that we are also in the midst of collapse. That started to click. Yes. And then that eventually led me towards understanding the ecological and climate crisis once those various forms of data were being tied together. And, um, and so, you know, and, and another component of this journey is I grew up, again, I grew up Mormon, I grew up religious. And in fact, my family, the reason we're here in the United States is because my ancestors in Europe in the late 1800s, they were converted to the Mormon church, to the LDS faith mm -hmm. in England and Dan Denmark and other parts of Europe. And they migrated to the United States, made their way across the plains to what is now Salt Lake City, you know, Salt Lake Valley or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and then they were farmers and they started moving out to Idaho. And that's why I'm here, you know? Yeah. And I started to really think about especially the past few years, the, the, the impact growing up in that religious environment had on my interests and my perspective. 
because I think we can all pretend that we're super objective and we live in this like, oh, I'm a very objective. I understand reality as exactly as it is. And I know how all these systems work. Certainly there's a level to that that you can maybe get to. But I remember being a kid and my dad in particular was like, almost like, I almost want to say like a zealot, you know, he was, he was so into not just religion, but really esoteric religious ideas. Mm -hmm. And he really, really drilled into me and my, my siblings that we are going to see the second coming of Christ any day now mm-hmm. that the antichrist is going to come back. There was going to be plagues and war and famine and all these apocalyptic, horrible biblical events were going to happen. And I remember thinking, I thought we're supposed to be happy that Christ was coming back and we we're going to live in the millennium. It sounds like a shit show. Honestly, it sounds horrible. It sounds horrifying. It sounds terrible. And I had this really weird, almost, I don't know if it's a low level kind of trauma or whatever it was, but like I connected this idea of the divine saving humanity with really, really horrible things happening to humanity. I think something happened there. Some bridge was made. And so, uh, you know, when I reached the age of 17 or so, I, I, you know, I I like to ask questions. That's why I do my podcast. I was doing the same thing at 17 in church. I was asking my teachers, like, well, that doesn't make sense. Well, can you explain that more? Um, I don't understand this whole polygamy thing. Why did they abandon the polygamy thing? That's weird. Or, you know, oh, you, oh, you just started giving black men the priesthood in the late seventies. That's kind of, that's kind of messed up. You know, that's not good. Uh, I just started asking these questions and, you know, it makes them uncomfortable. <laughs> you, think? Eventually, you think, right? You're crazy, right? And I mean, this is actually a very somber tone or a point to this, but I mean, there were a couple things that happened that shifted me, but certainly what really broke the camel's back, I guess you could say, is I had a friend that I grew up with who served uh, a mission like he was supposed to, because Mormon, especially boys, they grow up, they become 18, 19 years old. And it's very strongly encouraged that you spend two years wherever the church wants to send you and preach the gospel, right? So you take these poor white boys living in Utah and they send them to Belize or Chile. I mean, that's cool. Like, I mean, great. You know, it's a big, big moment in their lives. I get it. But there was a friend of mine who was very prone to anxiety and depression. He went on a mission to Nicaragua, came back early. Now I have to acknowledge as well, and this is important to note, that even though the church maybe will never acknowledge this, there is a stigma attached to, to young men, particularly that come back early from their missions. Right, of course. It's like seen as a mark of shame. Of course. Now, he came back, and I remember I, I saw him, and within two weeks after seeing him, he committed suicide. Wow. And I had this conversation with the bishop, right? I don't know if people understand how the church works, but it's an extremely hierarchical, organized thing. Now, mm-hmm. the bishop is, presides over your ward, which is your particular group of your, your mm-hmm. church. And I had these conversations with him, and he told me that my friend was very depressed and he was basically being counseled by the bishop and by the so-called stake president, which is the higher rank in the, the hierarchy. And I remember in that moment thinking, you are not qualified. You are just some dude that they told that, that gave you this position. Yeah. I don't care if you believe it was your calling or not from God, yeah. you are not in any position to be counseling an extremely depressed, anxious young man. Like I was my, my thought. And um, that was the thing that broke the camel's back for me. I mean, I just decided I have to step away from this. And um, 
you know, and I've seen so many of my friends that I grew up with as well. I just actually reconnected with a friend I haven't spoken to in almost 10 years. He had a similar kind of breaking point with the church. Yeah. And so I think, actually, I want to tie this into the podcast because actually the, the name Last Born in the Wilderness mm-hmm. is a direct reference from a scripture in the Book of Mormon. Okay. So my dad, he would call me his last born in the wilderness because I was the, I'm the youngest of this big family. Wow. He called me that. And I remember at the time I came up with the podcast, I, I think I was feeling really homesick or something. And that's just the name that stuck in my mind and I stuck with it. And then as the podcast evolved and as the ecological dimension of the work really started to, to, to manifest itself, I realized that wow, like I, I didn't even realize it, but like this name means way more than I had ever thought it would. Yeah, amen. And um, so I, I just want to say, I wonder how much of my upbringing being in a very almost apocalyptic mindset from a very young age has informed my views and my interest in apocalyptic conversations and ideas in general. Yeah. Not to say that they're invalid or that they're not relevant or important, but I just really, I think a lot about that because what, what pivotal events in people's lives have led them to where they are now in the work that they choose to engage in and how much of that is therapy and how much of that is actually just kind of replaying traumatic experiences. And um, for me, it's been a little bit of both, to be yeah. honest with you. Um, I've maybe replaced a religious apocalyptic fear with a ecological, climatological fear apocalyptic fear (laughs) and i don't know if one is better than the other but one is certainly more grounded in reality than the other i will say that yeah Yeah, it's interesting i grew up catholic i was the eldest son in an irish catholic family expected to be a priest and then i had a born-again experience uh in germany uh, in an assemblies of god Mm. context and so was very engaged in pentecostal assemblies of god charismatic um biblical literalist uh, interpretation and uh you know, yeah, and I, yeah. I now interpret all mythic language as saying something poetic or symbolic or metaphorical about the nature of reality, this one reality in which we live and move and have our being. And so I interpret Christ or Christian as being pro-future and anti-Christ mm. or anti-Christ you know, anti being anti-future. And so to my mind, the, uh, the, um, the rise of the Antichrist is not an individual, a supernatural individual. It was the rise of industrial capitalism, which sought to benefit itself at the expense of the future. And uh, if there is to be a second coming of Christ, it's the reemergence of indigenous heart and mind and actions. Uh, I mean, that, you know, these are symbols. I'm just interpreting these symbols. But as Thomas yeah. Berry used to say famously, he's one of my significant mentors, um, it's far easier to reinterpret mythic language or symbolic language than it is to poo-poo it. Uh, to say something like, oh, you've heard it said, yeah. and but this is what it actually means, and you're simply interpreting it in a more reality-grounded, evidential way, who's going to argue with you? Or at least most people aren't. Um, but if you say, oh, that's just shit, <laughs> you get resistance. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Well, I mean, that, I just want to say, like, that's been, like, when I did leave my religion behind, I did go through a period where I was an atheist. Of course. And then, and then, you know, because I think that's actually the thing is, especially with being Mormon, so much of your life, your community is so tied up with that religion that once you leave it behind, it's like you have nothing left really for a while. So I think spirituality and all of that almost is 
you just want to push that away because that's like Absolutely. this is too Absolutely. too painful right now but over time i've moved away from that and i'm i i do consider myself to have much more of an animist perspective on things and uh and and spiritual view i call it ecotheism it's like I tried, I do, yeah. I do everything I can to hit both theists and atheists as hard as I possibly can because they're both belief-based. Theism, I believe yeah. in the supernatural being. Atheism, ain't no such thing. Well, both yeah. sides tend to treat the biosphere as an it to be exploited rather than a vow to be honored to in a, in a, in an, uh, related to in an honorable way. So I'm, yeah. I'm an eco-theist. And I think indigenous peoples, that sort of animism is really ecotheism 1.0. It's, 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 it's treating the living world as, as uh, divine vows. I, that's the thing. It's like the ancients didn't believe in the tree spirits or the tree people or the cloud people. They related personally, respectfully to the various aspects of reality. Right. You know, so right. I, I, right. Uh, when yeah. I, the last time I spoke in Salt Lake City or the Salt Lake City, whole, you know, the valley, I think I spoke in mm -hmm. eight or nine different churches. This was two or three years ago. And it was amazing. Somebody in the ex-Mormon world uh, had, you know, been tracking on my stuff. And in most of the churches that were Unitarian Universalist, most of them were Unitarian Universalist churches that I spoke in, um, there was times when more ex-Mormons showed up for the presentation because the ex-Mormon meetup group or Facebook or however they were getting the word out. But, you know, where the, you know, the, there were 38 members of the church and 44 ex-Mormons showed up to hear my presentation. <laughs> it was quite interesting, you know. Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting group. And it's, uh, you, you have to, I, I remember I worked at a coffee shop for, well, I worked in customer service a lot up until recently, but I worked in a coffee shop and we had a big upstairs area where people could reserve for meetings and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And there was a whole group of uh, people that were former Mormons. And they were all people who, I mean, it was a support group and they were all people who were in their middle ages. I mean, they were, imagine that. I mean, I'm 31. I had, I, I luckily, I went through my leaving my religion behind thing early on, mm -hmm. but I was seeing those same patterns and emotions and that happening in people that were basically like in their late thirties and their forties and their fifties. Yes. And I had to be like, man, I'm, I mean, I, I love them and I want them to do well, but like, I realize like that's a huge transition. Huge. It really is. Yeah, it really and is. Yeah. I, and I would say also, I imagine coming to terms with what's happening in the planetary sense is also a big shift because your assumptions are changed so much yeah. in coming to terms with that. Yeah. And that becomes a part of your journey. Yes, yeah. exactly. Wow. Well, Patrick, in beginning to wind this down, I want to ask you about, um, you know, there's other questions that I have been asking that we, we just don't have time to get into. Um, but I sure. would love to hear you articulate any particularly important mentors, books, uh, inspirations, like what tools do you have in your toolbox to help you stay present and, you know, more or less sane, sober and inspired on a mostly day by day basis in the midst of really challenging, contracting, chaotic, uh, ecologically collapsing times. Mm. Well, you know, one of my, uh, I don't know if he likes to call me or likes me to call him my mentor, but Dar Jamal, I mean, I, I, he's been very good at helping me stay grounded. Um, and I know everybody can have a relationship with Dar Jamal, but nonetheless, you know, you got to find that person. If you're seeking that person in your life, they will emerge eventually. 
in some form or another, right? I, I believe that to be true. Um, so, you know, reading his journalism, reading his, those, those deep uh, essays that he and Barbara Cecil have written together for, for Truth Out, which, you know, they have that on hold currently. They might get back into that soon. Who knows? Um, but in reading his book, The End of Ice, of course, and then all the conversations I've had with him, I mean, he has really helped me stay grounded just in advising me to take time to take care of myself. I think especially right now with everything slowing down with this pandemic and everything, this truly is the time to reflect. This is really the time to observe. This is really the time to um, try to pick up positive, helpful habits. You know, I mean, if a lot of people have a lot of time on their hands right now, I know that's not the same for everybody, but like, I mean, if there's ever a time to sit here and try to develop better habits, um, it's, it's right now. So um, yeah, I, I would say Dar Jamel has been really inspirational uh, to me. And I mean, I'm just in a really unique position. So it's hard for me to recommend because really, mm-hmm. I think what we're all doing in our own way is just connecting with people. I mean, yeah. a lot of people, I've been talking to people that I haven't talked to in a long time, yes, exactly. just to see how they're doing. Yes, exactly. And I think that actually really helps ground you because you can recognize the experiences of other people and that will help you recognize your own experiences as what they are and keep everything in perspective because I think we can very easily fall into a state of panic and anxiety right now especially so check in with other people constantly I mean not constantly but just check in with them regularly check in with your family your friends and those that that you care about even people that you may have haven't talked to in years I so totally agree with you and I literally five days ago I created a list. I went through and created a list of all the people that have been important in my life, whether I've been in communication with them in the last decade or two or not. And I just wrote a list and I sort of made a spiritual practice to reach out to at least one or two people a day, uh, either in email or phone or in in a couple of cases, handwritten letters um, to just basically communicate thoughtfulness, care, love, compassion, whatever, but just to connect. And that has nourished my soul so deeply to especially people that I haven't been in communication with for a while. Um, Yeah, it's a practice that I encourage anybody watching or listening to this conversation to to take on. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's pretty much all I've got. To be honest, I uh, don't know what else to say. I mean, this is, I'm also trying to navigate this, you know, and, and figure this out for myself. And I'm learning a lot about myself right now. And what does the Saza saying go? Some deck, oh, oh, I don't even know the saying, but it's, it's like basically how, how time is really speeding up right now. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a big part of the, the issue is that events are happening so rapidly now. We have to develop practices to center ourselves. And that's really important because I've had to, and I have to relearn this over and over and over again. I think sometimes I'm a slow learner in certain things. One thing I don't remember is that I cannot take care of other people unless I take care of myself and attend to my needs. And I I have a real issue where I'm like, I'll just power through this. I'll get all this stuff done. I'll stay busy. I'll stay busy. I'll stay busy. I'll deal with myself later until you collapse with exhaustion and anxiety and you can't even think straight, you know? And I'm like, that's not a good pattern to get into. So uh, I've had to really learn that myself. Um, staying busy is good, but only up to a point. For more information about this project, go to postdoom.com. <laughs>